Spring, Harry Island Towers. Damn, there's a lot of producers on this movie. That's it. I'm done. I'm done. Hey, hey! Where do you think you're going, Jacob? I'm leaving. Like hell you're leaving. Get back to work. You can take this pod and shove it, Nick. This isn't fun for me anymore. Hey, you think I'm having fun doing nothing but yelling in our episode intros? This is my third time in a row! Get out of my way, Nick. Nicholas! What's all the goddamn ruckus? <laughs> Sorry, sir. Just a slight case of co-host insubrination here. Jacob. I should have known. Seems he ain't so keen on watching our next movie. That's so. What movie, pray tell? Uh, the, the, the Mangler, sir. The one our Toby Hooper fan poll. Overnight terrors and eaten alive. Fan poll. People voted for it, hmm? Was this a Patreon poll? Uh, no, sir. PayPal dip jar? No, sir. Coffee, perhaps? A, a Twitter poll, sir. Hmm. Twitter. A free platform, last I checked. That's correct. Well, then. Perhaps Jacob has a point. He, he does? I do. Oh, quite. There are costs involved in keeping our little nonsense factory up and running. Podcast platforms aren't free, you know. At least not when the episodes are as self-indulgently interminable as ours. And these sound effects you hear? Those are high-quality wave files you're listening to. They don't just grow on trees. Hey, hey boss, are these the same sound effects from Nightmare on Elm Street intro? Well, sometimes you have to cut corners. Though perhaps Jacob is right. Perhaps we shouldn't simply cater to the whims of a few dozen unpaid mouse clicks. Ironically, for a medium based on talking heads, it's money that truly talks. And when money speaks, we should listen. Really? Indeed. And if you listen very closely, the money is saying that there's more money to be made in reviewing Stephen King adaptations. Have you seen the KingCast Patreon page? Currently over 700 patrons, on top of that Fangoria money. So that means that of the three Toby Hooper movies on that poll, we stand to make the most revenue by reviewing the goddamn Mangler! Back to work! No, you son of a bitch! Spare me your contempt and save it for the movie, Jacob! We don't call you the horror group for nothing! Vitriol is the lifeblood of lucrative podcasting! You can't make me review something against my will. Watch me! Have we learned nothing from the malignant episode? Your free will is an illusion conjured at my convenience! <laughs> Nicholas! Yes, sir. Fire up the opening theme! I feel like dancing! Hello, hello, hello. And welcome to a new episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. This is Eric Dillinger, joined by co-host Nick Leamy. Hey, everybody. And Jacob Jones-Goldstein. James Harden is a sixer. Yay! Yay. <laughs> oh, Nick faked it real nice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm familiar with the beard. I know he's a personality. I know parts of Philly are going to love him. 
Look, you're just going to be lucky if I can get through this podcast without reverting to like Mr. Burns saying Homer Simpson, just James Harden, James Harden, James Harden, James Harden, James Harden. Harden. I feel so sorry for our non-sports listeners. (laughs) Look, I've been, I've been recruiting my basketball fans to listen to this. So I got, I got to throw them a bone. I've got to throw a little James Harden content in there. And honestly, you know, after his first two games over the weekend, the fact that I didn't ascend directly to heaven and I'm not recording this from a pearly gates is pretty impressive. So, you know, <laughs> it was uh, it was a good weekend. Fair enough. That's all the score. Yeah. Congrats. Yeah. Uh, everything is looking up. So, of course, you know, this being Philadelphia sports, I'm sure by the time anybody listens to this, I mean, I, I don't even want to imagine what horrible foul disaster has befallen us. But right now I'm happy, motherfuckers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for all of Jake's new basketball friends who are listening, welcome. And for listeners both new and old, just to mention up front, our intro is not us begging for money. It's just the obvious joke to make, given the movie that we're doing. But, although if you want to support us, <laughs> tpublic.com slash user slash scary dash stuff dash podcast. Or you just send me directly money. Just DM us. I'll send you my address. I'll look. I'll... <laughs> Whatever. Sponsor. It's called sponsorship. I don't give a shit. I got no morals. <laughs> We'll put a new t-shirt up for this. We got, I got mangled and all I got was this nicely pressed t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> we we got to get Nick a new laptop before Eric has an aneurysm trying to edit him. So, you know. <laughs> we, yeah, we've already got lag. <laughs> so like, pray for this recording. We can even call it the mangler. There we go. Started, you know, uh, uh, what was it? Ko-Fi? Coffee? I don't know how to fuck. Buy Nick the Mangler a new laptop. Get him Alienware or something. Ooh. I will throw a couple plugs out up front. These aren't paid spots or anything. I just wanted them to plug. But they could be. be. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I did mention, so we're doing this, this like we mentioned in the intro, this one, our fan poll. And a couple people mentioned to us on Twitter that they were, you know, Fans of the Mangler and looking forward to us reviewing it. And I'm going to mention one person in particular, which would be author Alex Woodrow, who's on Twitter. And I just wanted to mention uh, Alex's work real quick because I'm a few stories into the anthology Insomnio, a collection of modern gothic horror. I got this months ago when we backed it. I just don't have much time to read. But I'm a few stories in and it's terrific. Uh, It's from Tenebris Press, who we've mentioned on previous episodes. They're a great publisher. And then Alex also has another anthology out, which is called A Quaint and Curious Volume of Gothic Tales. And Nick and Jake can attest that I am holding them up. Yes. This one is from a different publisher. This one is Bridget Skate Press. We, we use so many props for an audio-only podcast. <laughs> I love it. It brings me joy. There's another one coming up here in a second. So, so yeah, Alex is great. Definitely check out Alex's work. And the other thing I want to mention, since we mentioned them up front, was to plug KingCast, who obviously doesn't need our help since they're getting... You know, like we mentioned, that sweet, sweet Fangoria money and, and all those Patreon supporters. But Scott Wampler and Eric Vespi, they're great hosts. It's a terrific podcast. It really is. And I wanted I we support them on Patreon. And one thing I was listening to today is they just started up a comics episode and they're doing American Vampire, the series Stephen King co-wrote with Scott Snyder. And they have a special guest on there, Lindsay Travis. And it's a really fun discussion. And Lindsay's currently in a writing class with Scott Snyder. So she has a lot of anecdotes from that. So it's really terrific. But the reason I want to shout out KingCast in particular was as part of the research for this episode, quote unquote research, I <laughs> watched The Mangler 2. No. Which we're not reviewing today, but I watched it. I'm sorry. You you have. No, I, I didn't watch Mangler 2. I, I watched The Mangler 2 and The Mangler Reborn, which I'm also waving. No, why did you do that? Oh, my God. I was going to watch The Mangler 2. 
And then I read the description of it and just nope the fuck right out of that. It's like, I'm not, I'm not, this fucking lawnmower man knockoff bullshit. I don't need that. It's, oh my God. Yeah, it's, that movie's a fucking right. So if you haven't seen it, because it's also, it's not streaming anywhere. I bought a used copy of both movies. So just save yourself the trouble. So after you listen to our review of The Mangler, KingCast, they, A, they have a really good episode on The Mangler itself where they have DC Pearson as their guest on it. But then they brought DC Pearson back to do The Mangler 2, and they put that episode up the day after I watched it. And if you've seen The Mangler 2, there's not going to be many people who can say this. It's like, it's one of those movies you finish, it was like, I got to be like one of two people in the world who've seen this fucking thing. And and then I log into Twitter the next day, and there's an episode on it. It was the most amazing bit of serendipity. So please, in lieu of watching the movie, go check out their review of it. I have to ask, because I did look up at least some of the pictures real quick for it. it does it actually have Lance Hendrickson in it? Lance Hendrickson is in it. That That's so disheartening. <laughs> you think Lance Hendrickson's ever turned anything down? <laughs> Look, I like the guy, but he is definitely a volume artist. Yeah, that's fair. There is a topic on our spreadsheet, which is all movies Lance Hendrickson was in the sequel to. So... <laughs> This checks that box, I guess, importantly. But we we got another Lance Hendrickson esque volume artist in the community connection, which we'll get to in a little bit. So a lot of that tonight. Yeah, I've been I've been looking forward to to this discussion. So so what did everybody think of the Mangler? It, it was it was okay. I enjoyed it. So I reread the story for this as well because you know I own many many Stephen King novels. And it was real nice uh, to return to it. And it was interesting to see how, while the book takes these separate instances, like over various times, and kind of like connects them through stories and, and like flashbacks. And the movie was just like, well, let's just shove it into one fucking night. <laughs> Which was awkward. And they clearly wanted to have Officer Hutton, like just be the primary focus between all of these separate bits. That being said, I still think it turned out pretty well, despite the epic levels of overacting. (laughs) (laughs) As an adaption, it's interesting that it hits all of the major points in the short story. Yes. I mean, they obviously, they fluff it up quite a bit because, you know, they have two hours to kill instead of the 15 minutes that story would have taken to. But I I thought they did a good job of actually adapting the story and, you know, broadening it. I'm kind of shocked they changed it as much as they did. I understand adding more to expand and and fluff out the time frame, but I really don't know why they just wanted Hutton like at the center of every single bit of the story. I don't think it was necessary. That being said, it was very nice to get every bit of the story in there. We'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the script, because I, I did read one of, at least one of the drafts of the script for this. There, there's no name or date on it, so I don't know where it was, and there are some differences. So we'll get into that more because the script is actually a little bit closer to the short story than the finished movie is. Okay. There's not wild differences, but it is kind of in between the finished product and the story. Okay. So that's that's one vote for it. That was that was relatively positive, Nick. Yeah, I mean, on the whole, I, I enjoy it. It's a decent adaptation. It, it is definitely a little wacky at times. <laughs> did you like it, Art? I, 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 I did like this movie. and i say that sheepishly somewhat because this movie is largely derided 
Now, and the movie absolutely has fans, like we mentioned. We have, yeah, it is. It's got like a, a like a one percent or something on Rotten Tomatoes, and <laughs> yeah, but but it does have fans. There are people who you know tweeted about it before that they like it. There are folks who tweeted at us about you know being excited that we're doing it. Uh, the the biggest one is Scout Tafoya, who's an expert in all things Toby Hooper, has a book out on all of Toby Hooper's work called Cinemophagy, which I've read bits of and is really really interesting. But Scout Tafoya has a video on, I think it was originally on RogerEbert.com. Now it's on his Twitter page. And he has a series of videos called The Unloved. It's basically like taking a different perspective on me. He has one on The Mangler where he talks about basically this is a very, very important work in Toby Hoopy's career. Yep. And that he feels it's it's incredibly underappreciated. So I am not that far on... <laughs> I, I don't think this is a, a like lost classic, but I think it is over the top in ways that appeal to me. I think it is very fun on a lot of levels. I think it tries to do interesting things. The KingCast episode that I listen to on it, I don't normally listen to other pods on movies that we're about to do because I just tend to just focus on our stuff. But in, on their review, they were pretty thoroughly negative on it. But what they mentioned was that they appreciated the movie takes what they called big swings. Oh, yeah. That they were like, it misses, but it takes big swings. And yeah, I appreciate that it takes big swings. I think it actually connects with the ball a bit on some of them. But also, in, I, I do legitimately think this movie's interesting in terms of Toby Hooper's overall career. And we'll get into more of that here in a little bit. So. All right. <laughs> I <laughs> See, I mentioned this because I know you've been, you mentioned on previous episodes, Jake, you were <laughs> so, so excited to do this movie. Well, all right. So I, I feel like I, I learned a few things about myself <laughs> watching this film. One of them was I my memory of horror movies I've seen in the past is not that great. I have never seen this. I've mentioned before, I thought I saw it and I remembered a scene. It was not this. I was somehow thinking of Deathbed. Which I have somehow seen. What? Before. Oh my god! Yeah. How, I, how? What? How did you conflate deathbed, the bed that, that eats, eats people, people. <laughs> with, with the mangler? Don't know. I'm just shocked he saw it. I know. Like before the Pat Oswalt bit, or <laughs> I don't know. I but because I've seen deathbed, the bed that eats people, <laughs> but I saw it after <laughs> Pat Oswalt did a bit about it. I I don't know, but the scene I was thinking of was from that. And not this. The other thing I learned about myself is I am an absolute sucker for early 90s Stephen King adaptions. That sounds right. Because I, I, I wouldn't say I loved it, but I really enjoyed watching this film. Hey! Wow. All right. And I, I couldn't believe it. Like, I, I always feel like I'm letting people down <laughs> by liking this film. But it's it, and certainly my wife just stared at me when I told her that because she. When I was watching it one of the times, I didn't realize it because I, I had the headphones. When I watch horror movies upstairs, I wear headphones so that Jen can't hear whatever's going on and I don't have to explain anything. Been there. Because that's just smart. And <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't realize she was standing behind me watching it for a while. Oh, no. And so with no sound. and Which bit? It was one of the death scenes. Oh, no. <laughs> it was the scene at the end where he goes through the mangler and he gets folded over and, and all that. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> so she's watching all that behind me. And then, you know, I say, I'm sorry I had to watch that movie. And I said, I liked it. And she just like looked at me 
for like a while you know, to the point where if you're married and your, your wife looks at you like that for a while you know she's she's thinking about a lot of life choices in order and you just you know there's a reevaluation of things going on there but it's it's entertaining like i i look i went into this with with the worst possible attitude i could and for me that's that's pretty good because you know i i go into almost everything with a bad attitude like even my my very first note is oh cool this movie starts in the dank factory (laughs) but i after a while i realized look it's 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 dumb and it doesn't make a lot of sense and the stuff that happens isn't necessarily particularly coherent and some of it is just fucking weird yes fair <laughs> but it, it holds together like this this central core of just pure goofy horror entertainment it's not taking itself so seriously that it moves too far in any direction and it it feels like it enjoys itself and that was my into just enjoying it I, if that makes any sense no yeah that does <laughs> it has some of that that timeless sort of quality like they're all driving modern cars, but everything else is the forties. Yes. You know, that I, I like <laughs> yes. when stuff jumbles up like that. Like I like when you look at it and you can't immediately peg when this is taking place. I just I I enjoyed it. And and I think, oddly enough, the fact that Ted Levine is somehow playing both Bob Odenkirk and Thomas Jane at the same time. <laughs> really I, I you know, but while also remaining Ted Levine was just it was so fun. And silly. And I just, I I really enjoyed it. The, the thing that I didn't enjoy that's going to get me in trouble is I didn't particularly like Robert England in it. Well, so let, let me touch on my few complaints with the film real quick. I, I love me some Toby Hooper. Uh, I love his kind of style. And I, I have found him to be a director who enjoys and goes for overacting. He likes very overexpressing and over the top and like this, this this sort of surreal potent vibrant energy from all of his characters you get that a lot in a lot of his different films and while i like that style and it where was really that well, shit in freddy's nightmares <laughs> and while i like oh that, it was over the top <laughs> oh, yeah. while i like that style and i like that execution in a lot of his films I feel with a Stephen King franchise, you needed to be a bit more grounded and a bit more of that like kind of main, you know, we're quiet and not so surreal here, but all the shit's happening in the background. Like with King, it's always the... I like that you just said the guy who wrote Trash Can Man and Pennywise the Clown has to be more <laughs> grounded with fucking Robert England playing old Freddy. No, I agree though. It's, I think, I think Robert England... And Ted Levine, both of them, um, are capable of extreme over-the-topness and just very effusive energy to the point where they went too far outside of the acceptable bounds for this story. The story of the killer washing machine. Yes! Absolutely! (laughs) And that's important because the more realistic and the more grounded the characters are, the more terrifying the enemy becomes the less of uh, ridiculousness it becomes. The more of the the more you can feel that these are real people who are feeling real legit fear, the more the terror becomes terrifying. And I think their slightly cartoonish approach to it kind of took away from that. 
I, I could see that, except the whole premise is so cartoonish to begin with that I, I get the choices they made. I just, for, for whatever reason, Robert, it just didn't click with me. It was just a little too, you know, vaudeville Barker. Ugh. He wasn't, he didn't come off as sinister to me. And I, I feel like that role could have used a little bit more sinister. Yes. Yeah, I, I I don't adore England's performance in this. I I think he's entertaining to watch, and yes. I think he he. So for what Nick was just talking about in terms of Toby Hooper's overall career, one thing that it looks like is that, and I haven't seen everything, but broad strokes, it looks like he really was kind of, in a lot of ways, a victim of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's success, mm-hmm. and that people saw this movie and thought it was the most terrifying movie of all time up to that point or people think it's one of the most terrifying movies of all time and still has that reputation in a lot of circles and to toby hooper he was trying to make a horror movie but even he said no i thought it was funny (laughs) and you know there's an anecdote i was reading an interview with daniel matmore who plays mark jackson in this who was he's in night terrors and he was one of the writers on night terrors and we'll talk a, a little bit more about him later and most of that interview I'll probably touch on when we get to Night Terrors because it's mostly on that movie. But one thing he mentions is when he was giving Hooper the script to Night Terrors, Hooper sat and read it and just wasn't saying anything. And he finally went, it's not horrific enough. If it was horrific enough, I'd be laughing, but I'm not laughing. So it's not horrific enough. Nice. And they had to go in and put more horror bits in. So terror and humor are are very closely intertwined. And then like Nick mentioned that his penchant for theatrics and his love of theatricality and, and the over the top elements comes through in a lot of other stuff but i think a lot of his movies people look at the prism of expecting it to be you know pants shitting terror and like or in this case pants folding terror (laughs) 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 pants washing terror no no folding folding was right way but it's funny that jake you mentioned that you hadn't seen this before because i had i saw this when it hit vhs with my parents my dad rented it on a whim wow and my dad was expecting it to be an actual horror movie and i at that point this was my first toby hooper movie i hadn't seen texas chainsaw or any of the other ones but i knew the reputation of texas chainsaw the box art sure shit scared me as a kid yep. you know i was certainly scared by the fucking teaser trailer for leatherface which is baffling in hindsight the fucking Excalibur riff with the lady in the lake throwing the chainsaw. <laughs> that wasn't Toby Hooper, but just talking about the franchise. So I, I went in thinking, oh, the Mangler and, and fucking Freddy Krueger's in it. It's going to be terrifying. And then I was like, this is silly at the time. <laughs> and and there's one only one bit of it I remembered clearly. It, funny, you mentioning the bit that you thought was from Deathbed. There's one bit of this movie I remember clearly, and it's exactly how I remembered it, which is when Stanner's getting pulled into the Mangler. Yep. And... You know, they're trying to do something. He said, do something. I'll dance. And just remembered <laughs> Robert England dancing around on the scaffold. I'll do a little jig for you. <laughs> so that was clear as day in my memory. So, yeah, so I, I do think the movie being so derided on its release, I think, was partly due to folks having a certain perception because they all a lot of the advertising for Toby from the Master of Terror it's like, yeah, he's the master. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is very scary. He's also the guy who made Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. <laughs> these are very; these are the same person. You know, she hit me in my plate. <laughs> <laughs> That's a movie I think about all the. Oops, must be one of them hard shell peppercorns. You know? <laughs> Someday we're gonna have to do that franchise because I've still never seen these movies. They are quite unique. 
it's yeah they're <laughs> they're all in the news lately after the new Texas Chainsaw, which mm-hmm. lit hard Twitter on fucking fire. Holy shit! I almost watched it. Like I, I, I almost I, did too. There were so many tweets about him. Like maybe, but and it felt wrong to start there. I would agree. I didn't want another poltergeist thing, so I just I'm gonna wait. But to touch on one thematic thing briefly for that bit about Texas Chainsaw Massacre two, which it was has all its capitalism you know elements and you know the small business stuff and whatnot for one specific thing with the mangler and, and why it's place in toby hooper's filmography is so much fun is going back and looking at his early movies so i mentioned previously i'd watched eaten alive and i watched night terrors even though they didn't win our poll i watched both of them i'll say this jake i i was expecting coming into this you would like eaten alive the most because of if nothing else big crocodile then mangler and then Night Terrors would be dead last because I'm pretty sure if we did Night Terrors, it would be my favorite episode of the pod and everybody <laughs> else's least favorite. But I'd be fascinated because that movie's fascinating and nobody talks about it. That was the one I was rooting for to win. That's the one I wanted to watch. Yeah, I, I think you would have liked it, the, particularly now knowing what you liked about The Mangler. But I, I do want to do it someday. I really, really do. I agree. But. So look at Hooper's early filmography, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Eaten Alive, and The Fun House, which I watched the other day, part of this. Oh, I love The Fun House. Watching The Fun House right before this, in close conjunction with The Mangler, is fascinating for, well, for the thematic element I'm about to mention, but also mild spoilers for The Fun House if anyone hasn't seen it. And also, this will be where we throw up our spoiler warning for The Mangler, just, again, full spoilers. The climax of The Fun House, sonically, is the opening of this movie. It's all gears, belts, and steam. Yep. It's all this this big mechanical set piece. And it was like, that's so funny that the ending of that movie is the beginning of this movie. Like almost kind of the same sound texture. I mean, literally like you're meant to the watch same basic sound effects. <laughs> but but it is kind of this warm handoff. But those early movies are so much about the derelict and the destitute people of society. Yes. And people who live in the fringes and have carved out these their own little niches, twisted though they may be, to survive within this American society. And, and did Hooper he did do Salem's Lot, too. Yes. Yeah. Yep, he did the TV mini for Salem's Lot, which I haven't seen because I want to read the book first, but we're going to get to it at some point. And then this movie is finally kind of taking that gaze and turning it upward to. The people at the top of the capitalist food chain mm-hmm. as literally turning the gaze upward because fucking Robert England's on a goddamn scaffold for the whole thing. <laughs> and seeing Hooper tackle the opposite end, you know, sort of the, the top of the trickle down economics of Hooper's filmography was really interesting. And I said, I don't think it was a complete success by any means. But the the effort was interesting. And again, in terms of this being very specifically him examining American culture is something I, I missed until the second or third watch through of this. Very specifically, there is a shot of the American flag being run up that flagpole as Hunton is heading out of the hospital at the end. Yep. Very clearly, because it starts with that and then pans over to Hunton. He wants you to see that flag. So Yeah, there's there's other stuff like that that's not like the sign over the the factory, the work will set you free from yep. Auschwitz. What's, yep. yep. Not subtle, Toby. No. You know? <laughs> so I guess before we get into too much plot and thematic stuff, Nick, you want to do the production rundown real quick? You got it. All right. 
So this is The Mangler from 1995. As we said, uh, written and directed by Toby Hooper. Uh, screenplay written and directed by Toby Hooper, who worked on Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1 and 2, Poltergeist, Spontaneous Combustion, and the Freddy's Nightmare Pilot. And is also screenplay written by Stephen David Brooks, who worked on Spiders 1 and 2, Heads and Tails, and Flytrap. One other quick note on Stephen David Brooks, what I'll mention is, is, aside from his writing credits, he was a member of the special effects crew on Life Force. He's the special effects supervisor here, and he was the second unit director on The Mangler and Spontaneous Combustion. So he was someone who had worked in close conjunction with Hooper prior to this film, and so he and Hooper must have become friends along the way. And we also have screenplay written by Harry Allen Towers, who worked on Count Dracula, Psycho Circus, and The Anatomist. And of course, the original story was written by Stephen King, which you can find in the Night Shift anthology. The movie was edited by David Heitner, who also worked on City of Blood, The Stick, and Cry the Beloved Country. Cinematography by Amnon Salomon, who also worked on Night Terrors, Late Night Stories, and Infiltration. Music by Barrington Falong, who worked on Hillary and Jackie, Shop Girl, and Inspector Morse. It was produced by Distant Horizon, who also worked on Pulse, Don't Look Up, and Pray. It's produced by Filmex, who also worked on a movie called More Than Just a Game. And produced by Allied Film Productions, who worked on Only This. <laughs> and <it was> distributed <laughs> by New Line Cinema, who of course uh, released such things as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Conjuring, and Evil Dead. So... The thing about the producers on this, one of the producers was Anant Singh, who I didn't realize this was filmed in South Africa until yep. I was kind of reading about it. That and London a bit. Yeah. Yeah. But it was interesting because it was filmed in South Africa in about, I want to say 93. I couldn't find the exact date it was filmed, but that's pretty close to some pretty seismic changes in South Africa. Uh, it's on the right side of them. But it was interesting, and I, I so I was kind of trying to find more about that, and I found out, I'm going to read a little quote from um, an article on Cinema Blend. It's a piece by Eric Eisenberg, and I, I just thought that was interesting. So, years later, Sabosky sold the Mangler rights to Harry Allen Towers and Salem Lot director Toby Hooper, who partnered with producer Anant Singh, and it was around that point that the adaption found itself in development under odd circumstances involving the political shift in the early 90s South Africa. By 1993, according to screenwriter Stephen David Brooks on the Blu-ray commentary, international boycotts were lifted, but there were limitations on overseas transfers of the country's national currency, the RAND, and Singh found himself in a position where he had to spend his investments in RAND locally. This circumstance resulted in the Mangler being deep into pre-production in South Africa long before a script was written, (laughs) and when first approached about the job, Brooks was given only 10 days left to compose his first draft. And I, I, I thought that was kind of interesting because it's, I mean, I was curious about what other movies were filmed in South Africa around then. And what I, I looked them up, and there's, there's a lot filmed in South Africa. There's a pretty good film hub there. But right before all this stuff, because Nelson Mandela was freed in 1990, and that was the beginning of the, a lot of the political shifts. And I was curious about movies released right before then or filmed right before then in that country during the cultural boycott. And there were some, but the ones that jumped out at me was fucking American Ninja 2 and American Ninja 3 were both filmed in South Africa. And American Ninja 2 was a few years before, but American Ninja 3 was 1989. So like at the the height of the cultural boycotts, these motherfuckers were filming American Ninja 3 in South Africa. That's the Steve Dudikoff franchise, right? 
Or Michael Dudikoff, yeah. Yeah, except th- I think three didn't have him in it, or four. One of them didn't have it. I didn't look too deep into the, you know, American Ninja stuff. I was just like, those jumped out at me. Wait, hold up. American Ninja was filmed in South Africa during apartheid? What the fuck? That's quite amazing. <laughs> so anyway, I, you know, I, when I was younger, you know, spent a lot of time marching against apartheid and, you know, I was in a, a church in, in Harlem the morning Nelson Mandela was freed. So I had like a connection to this stuff, it, you know, because I'm old. <laughs> so it was interesting to read the, just that that this of all of the ones that, that would, you know, jump into like my political awakening as a young man, fucking the Mangler, Mangler. <laughs> was the one that, that got me looking into all that again. So anyway, I, just as an anecdote, but I, I thought that was that was kind of a surprise. It was interesting. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, American Ninja Three. What the fuck? I mean, I'm I'm just gonna be stuck on this for a while, man. I'm gonna boycott that movie in reverse somehow. It was, it was specifically American Ninja Three, or was it Ninja Three: The Domination? I just wrote down American Ninja Two and Three. Okay. I didn't. I mean, I think they both had subtitles, but I'm not entirely sure. I get them mixed up because I, I definitely remember Ninja Three: The Domination from Canon Films. I remember, I saw American Ninja. I remember that, and I, I'm still to this day mixing up with Jim Cotta because. Jim Cotta is firmly implanted in my brain is one of those movies that I, I remember as a kid. And just it's it's one of those things where you look back in the 80s and like a lot of 80s stuff is, you know, kind of cool now. But then there's Jim Cotta and it's like, nah, dog. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of thing that tells you what the 80s were really like. Like you can make Cobra Kai all you want, man. That shit was still Karate Kid back then. We know what's up. So. <laughs> can't paste over all of it. Anyway, back to the Mangler. Yeah, the only thing I had to add on to what Nick mentioned, just a real quick note, which was the actual design of the Mangler, because one of the things the movie has going for it, I think, is that the Mangler itself looks really terrific. Yeah. It's a really fun set it's piece. It's fantastic. It's designed by William Hooper, who is Toby Hooper's son. He did all the design and all the, the work for the Mangler. And I've been, in this interview with Daniel Matmore, they mentioned, he was like, yeah, that shit was loud as fuck because there was a lot of moving parts in there. So... A lot of work went into it. It's intimidating. I had wondered if it was a real thing. Because Stephen King worked in an industrial laundry. Like, that's kind of where the story came from. His mother worked in one, too. Uh, I, I've got a quote about that. I'm going to read that. This is from uh, Stephen King Goes to the Movies. Mom worked herself nearly to death there in another minimum wage sweat pits in order to ensure her boys a college education. And my first job upon graduation was in a laundry. I was the motel sheets guy. A spunky specialty, my friends. But I got to see the mangler close up every day. The feed end was less than 30 feet from my big Washex Sudzomatic. It was indeed dangerous. One of the floor floormen, Harry Cross, had hooks instead of hands to prove it. Oh, my God. Ooh. So, like, I read that, and I thought it was, you know, the machine, like, it was real. Like, they were using a real thing. And I, I even tried to look up the Hadley Watson Model 6, and that's completely made up. Yeah. And then I realized that that's 666. Yep. If I had to hazard a guess... I guess the dimensions are more accurate in the book from his experience. So it'd be like 30 feet long and six feet across. Whereas the thing in the movie is fucking huge. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny because there's an IMDb trivia bit, which would clue me into the 666 thing, except it did it wrong. Because like, if you read it, it's like, you know, it's Hadley Watson and both those words have six letters. And then Mangler is six letters. I'm like, dude, it's model six. The third six is right there. You don't have to even bring in the title. Anyway. Also six prongs on the, the border around it, too. Yeah. yeah. Like, it wasn't the subtlest thing, you know. This is technically the first Transformers movie, so, you know. 
<laughs> you know, don't expect subtlety here. Oh my god, <laughs> the Mangler was a Decepticon the whole time. <laughs> you know what threw me most in the movie was the uh, possession of the icebox. <laughs> because it was just like they hadn't established how long the machine had been evil yet. And so having read the story, I thought it was going to be similar to the book where the one laundry woman like gets blood on it and that's when it starts to awaken. And so I'm like, well, how the hell does this so quickly just go, ah, blood, quick, I'm going to get into everything. <laughs> just, I'm going to arc into that thing and I'm going to be everywhere. And instead it was like, it paid off later, but it, having read the story, I was totally thrown for like the first half of the movie going, this is not right. The the icebox bit in the short story is my favorite part of the short story. The anecdote? Yeah, because yeah. it's just like, you know, some, you know, he's basically saying some things are evil and he uses the most innocuous thing. And then in the film, it's so fucking over the top. It's yep. like, I, like, I get why you did this. But in the story, this is just a subtle little anecdote about saying that sometimes things are just bad, which is a, absolutely a consistent theme in all of Stephen King's works. Yes. And it also made me wonder if the icebox that he's talking about in the Manglers, a crossover, it's the one that, that turns up in It, that the slugs shoot out of. I would not be surprised at all if he had crossover with that. Absolutely. Like, I, I mean, he wrote this in, what was it, 1972? You know, it was published in Cavalier Magazine or whatever. So, you know, obviously it's it's a long way from It. But, you know, the fact that that icebox turns up twice makes me wonder if Stephen King had some, like, bad-ass fucking <laughs> formative experience with a refrigerator. Probably one with they found with dead birds in. Yeah. My mom got trapped in one as a kid and she's been claustrophobic what? ever since. Yeah. Oh, oh my Jesus God. Christ. Yeah. So the the icebox stuff in Stephen King resonates with me because I've been hearing the story about that my whole life. I never had that issue about getting you know tempted to go into old refrigerators. You know why? Because I saw the Recondo G.I. Joe PSA. Yep. yep. It was fucking Recondo. See, just despite it, I, I I had that thing. I always wanted to try it. Because, like, despite my mom's stuff, Stephen King, it, I still, I have an older brother, which obviously, you know, if you've listened, you know, and you have stupid conversations, like, of course you can kick your way out, you know, and, uh, you know, oh, yeah, so it's very lucky we never found it in an old icebox, I'm just going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to assume modern day refrigerators are, are just, like, designed around the concept of someone's going to get stuck in this, make it so they can get the fuck out. But yeah, those old the old school icebox with the damn latch like clothes. Oh, yeah. Terrifying. I can say I hate my current refrigerator enough that the scene where he goes after the thing with a bat. Oh, that resonated <laughs> with me. <laughs> that might have been my favorite scene in the movie, man, because, oh, I dream of that day. <laughs> he goes to fucking 10, he knocks the top off and it shoots ghosts. It's like, come on, this is great. <laughs> how could I not enjoy this film? <laughs> yeah, that's scene. So here's how the. You mentioned a bit how the the icebox works in the the original short. How it's the anecdote that I think it's another cop gives Hunton. He's like, "Look, yeah, I heard this story about this thing, and you know, something like you said. Sometimes shit's just bad." In the original script, functionally, the setup for the icebox was the same as in the movie, where it gets it's in the opening, it gets blood on it, it bumps into the mangler, part of the mangler spirit hops into it via electricity, you know, all that stuff. The execution of it was a little bit different, where instead of it killing billy the little kid who ends up in it in the finished film first it kills a dog yep they open it up there's a dead dog in there and at that point hunton says all right look 
take that thing to the goddamn junkyard and make sure you take the door off it so no one can get in. They take it to the junkyard. They don't take the door off it. So then later in the movie, they find a dead kid in there. Much closer uh, to the story. Right. Yeah. And then they set it on. And the Huntins actually sits there and they they set it on fire. And it has the ghost bit, but it's as it's burning is when it kind of erupts and sweeps oh, all this that'd be good. spirit stuff. So instead, there was a bit in the script with the anecdote with Hutton getting a speech about sometimes shit's just bad. It was when Judge Bishop and the sheriff show up to inspect the mangler. And there's the dude with him with like the horn rim glasses. In the original scripts, he comes out after inspecting the mangler and he gives Hutton a story about, you know, there was an evil oven one time. And it's 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 an... It's much shorter, but he gives him a, a different possessed device anecdote. Okay. And that's the guy whose house the cop goes to in the short story. Yes. Yep. Speaking of ghosts coming out of the top of it. So one of the, the person who first refers to them as ghosts is... What a transition. Is, <laughs> and it's the strangest name, JJJ Picture Man. <laughs> hey, Picture Man. It's like, what the... It, I'm... So JJJ Picture Man is not in the original story. No. And it's the most oddball edition of exposition. Solely there it's up to there. really kind of <laughs> deal with his dead wife, who was not necessary in the first place. <laughs> yeah, he's got a wife and kid in the short story. Yes. Alright, so I well we'll we'll talk about the brother in a second. But yeah, I, I think my only note about the photographer is who the fuck is the photographer? Because he, he's so mysterious at the beginning of this. Yes. He's in it twice. The actor is. He's the mortician. Jeremy Crutchley. You know, for a while there, I actually felt like he wasn't going to be real. Like, only Hutton saw him. Like, that would have been interesting. That, like, like it was like this personal demon that in, in his own head that was, like, haunting him for the, the shit that had happened in his past. But no, he's just the town photographer. Dude looked like a demon, though, so I understand yeah. why. <laughs> Like he was creepy looking, and he's so creepy in this, but also harmless. He he ends up being that that Stephen King mentor character in a in a yep. pretty hard right shift towards the end before he coughs blood on the camera. Well, yeah. Well, he also <sighs> is so one of the main things about the film, obviously, it, 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 which the film is quite literal about, is this theme of consumption. Huh. Yeah, people work in a factory to make goods for consumers. That in turn consumes time, uh, you know, your time. Time was a bigger thing in the original script. I'll probably touch on that in a bit. And in the case of Picture Man is he is the one member of the old money that has some semblance of a conscience because they don't really explicitly spell it out, but he is missing his ring finger. He is one, yeah. he is a member of the old money. And a, I, I love the fact that, so Jeremy Crutchley was obviously, is like Robert Englund in this. It's a younger actor with old makeup appliances. Mm -hmm. And it's not seamless, but I thought the... No, he looks like a demon. That wasn't a joke. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it works for, like, jarring effect in a good way, because it's supposed to show, like, the, you know, the corruptive element. And it adds to this, you know, sort of uncanny valley element of these people who are... Mm -hmm twisted by this thing and in, and in Gartley's case being made you know part machine mm -hmm. Gartley was much more so like a, a mechanical hybrid in the script he was much stiffer 
you know, England has a voice box in the movie, which they don't really do anything with the sound and the script. It specifies that he had an electronic voice and all this stuff. So he was even closer to a man machine hybrid. He also had like these like crazy like scars that like, like implied other shit had happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. All, all behind his head. In the script, he had a, like a neck brace. So yeah, they, they did these scars and stuff on him instead. But I thought it was interesting with Picture Man is the, the one member of the old money who has some semblance of a conscience and he's being consumed from the inside by cancer. So they, they found all these ways to literalize the idea of consumption in different ways throughout the film. Aside from, you know, the literal big fucking thing that eats people, <laughs> you know, with the fucking safety bar as a jaw that it cracked me up every time it eats somebody. You just see the safety bar just flapping up and down like laughter, just dong, dong, dong. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the photographer is just a, such a strange addition to this whole thing. Yep. I mean, it feels like a dude who just walked in from another movie and hung around for a little while and then leaves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very accurate. Yeah, because he, he says all this weird, like, you know, cryptic, quirky shit. But like I said, it's, it's funny for all that the movie is so over the top, like we mentioned, and so thoroughly quirky. There's a lot of quirks in it that are just incongruous, where even within the movie's logic is like, this is feels out of place. Yep. So to speak to that, let's talk about the brother-in-law. Yeah. So... In the short story, he's not a brother-in-law. He's a, he's a friend. He's a friend. He's an English professor that he meets at the laundry. Yeah. Which, perfectly fine. It, it even makes sense. You know, it doesn't necessarily jive that he would be up on spells. But in this, they turn him into a neighbor brother-in-law who lives in some sort of fucking fairy wonderland <laughs> out back behind Ted Levine's house. And he's actually like a demonologist? Theoretical parapsychology. And has a bunch of magic books and Ted Levine, the, the, I don't want to say button down cop, but the miserable, probably alcoholic, you know, depressed cop. Ted Levine is a whirlwind of acid reflux in this movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he, he is absolutely playing the kind of character that should react negatively to everything, everything <laughs> about the brother. And, and they yes. even in, in the, in the beginning, where, you know, he, he reacts so strongly to the dude delivery man, you know, uh, the, the guy who looks like the dude who loses his arm and Snowpiercer and the other guy. And, <laughs> yeah, I checked and then I realized, wait, these movies are 20 years apart. You don't have to look that up. It's Pretty not the same gap. dude, yeah. idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and they set him up to this, you know, in such a way. And then you see him with the brother and it's like, oh, with the, you know, lights and all this shit. What's going on? And it, it, he's perfectly fine with him. Like, that doesn't make any sense. I love it. <laughs> because it's just it's so jarring but to the point where it's like okay fucking let's go let's go and that that was the signal to me that that i i could just relax and let this movie wash over me okay. which is that first scene with the brother I'm, I'm gonna nerd out here real quick so i'm a big fan of the civilization video game series uh, i about to say if you're gonna go in theoretical parapsychology i was gonna buckle up <laughs> no 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 I'm, I'm... you're gonna nerd out on error two of our horror podcast about the mangler <laughs> absolutely <laughs> no so the civilization series i forget which one it was it might have been civ two or three they had um gandhi for india and they broke it because they made him so peaceful and so like positive and nice that if you did one or two things just maintaining that, it actually kicked over the scale to the other side. Everyone thought you were hostile, and suddenly everyone wanted to go to war with you. 
And I feel Jake approaches horror movies the same way. At some point, <laughs> they just get so bad and they just like tip him over the scale and he gives up all hope. He says, like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I, love all of I no longer care, and this movie's amazing. <laughs> it's like a pinball machine where it tilts and all the lights come on. <laughs> it's like this makes no sense. That makes no sense. That, 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 that. Oh, this is good. I love this movie. <laughs> you're not. You're not wrong. I mean, it, it, it is. It's. It's like I said. It's like tilting, man. I, I get to a point where it's just like there is. There's no point in being mad at it. Just be friends with it, man. <laughs> That absolutely happened with this, and that was the scene that did that. Can we go back and redo the Stuart Gordon episode now? <laughs> no. Now that Jake's defenses have worn down, <laughs> maybe now is the time to do Reanimator. Now is definitely the time to do Reanimator. All right. Well, if we're going to do hyper nerd shit, then I'm going to do my community connection right here. All right. All right. So, so the connection is through Ted Levine. So Ted Levine did a lot of voice work in the aughts. Mm -hmm. And one of the shows he did was Justice League Unlimited. He voiced Sinestro. Sinestro. Also a voice on Justice League Unlimited was Michael Ironside, who did Darkseid. Michael Ironside played Colonel Archwood in Basic Lupine Urology, Season 3, Episode 17. There were other connections. There were other, like, less slightly askew connections but fuck it this if was you have the michael ironside option it's michael you ironside. take the michael ironside if option. i can get sinestro and Darkseid and michael ironside and the justice league is my community connection 100 percent of the time i think you did well this time I approve. that's our community connection because it's michael ironside man yeah maybe i was off when i described ted levine as a whirlwind of acid reflux of, of human acid reflux Maybe he's just the anti-life equation. (laughs) Like I said before, I was fascinated that he was somehow both Bob Odenkirk and Thomas Jane in this. And it it confused me. No lie. The first, because I didn't, I didn't realize Ted Levine was in this at first because I, I I started watching it before I looked up anybody involved in it. I knew Toby Hooper and I was like, Bob Odenkirk. He wait, nope, that's not, no way. Is it Thomas? No, hold up. What the fuck? And it's, it's, it's the hair. And his, yeah, I know, man. I look, but it, it's in some lights he looks exactly like Bob Odenkirk, and in others he looks like Thomas Jane. The hair is is the Thomas Jane, but it's not grief hair, but it's it's got that little <laughs> in the front. I hadn't thought of that. He does technically have grief hair in this movie. Yeah. There is the loss of a loved one, so yeah. So you know, somehow he predates Thomas Jane grief hair, and it's a little little more snazzy because he's got Ted the, Levine's the weak bump. grief hair game. <laughs> That's the name of the episode. <laughs> Got a little too much better call Saul in it, you know? <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, that's our community connection. And, and yeah, I, I it, yeah, this is definitely a tilt movie. That's what I'm going to call them from now. Because if I start calling them Gandhi movies, man, that's going to fucking confuse anybody <laughs> who <laughs> doesn't listen to this episode. Tilt, yeah. <laughs> and the fact that we're doing The Mangler makes me feel like this isn't going to be exactly our most listened to episode. <laughs> but uh... Ted Levine is, of, of the many elements of this film that people tend to look poorly on, one common one is a lot of folks are like, you know, Ted Levine was just wrong in, in the part. He, he oh, I disagree entirely. He's too aggressive. And it was like, look, if yes. so this ties in with, with the Mark Jackson thing, like you were just talking about, Mark, who was the English professor. So the original script, it, it wasn't a brother-in-law. No, it was straight up from the story. He was an English professor who had was fascinated with black magic on the side. And 
their dynamic was less inherently ridiculous and it was, <laughs> you know, less of an odd couple. And if you were doing that and that more of a grounded approach, then yeah, I can see you know, Ted Levine possibly being out of place if you were, to, but that's not the movie they made. And in oh. the movie they made, Ted Levine <laughs> was wonderfully aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> Just every scene, like scene one, where he's, you know, gets in the near car accident with, you know, the truck that's delivering the icebox. And A, they have a, a, I love that the scene has a music cue that tells you exactly what kind of, you know, movie this is going to be, which is or exactly like what the approach is. And when they say, you know, what kind of asshole are you? And he says, that's officer asshole to you. And there's a piano. Plink. He goes. <laughs> Move the truck, then we'll talk, okay? Clink. Okay. So this straight, this piano, like, it's telling you exactly how ridiculous this is going to be the first time you see him. But in the subsequent scene, when they drop the icebox on him, and he just <laughs> uses his entire diaphragm and, and just, no, I'm nuts! I laugh every fucking time. It is so unnecessarily vicious. I just like he's the only one to touch this evil icebox that doesn't die. Yeah, <laughs> this movie could save his role in this, the overacting of his role, if they added 90 seconds. If you just add, scattered throughout the film, three 30-second scenes of him downing an entire fucking liter of whiskey, then the rest of the film <laughs> makes sense, all right? <laughs> if you give the scene of Stannard <laughs> when he's down in the bottle of Cuddy Sark and just transition that over <laughs> to Don. <laughs> I don't know, man. As somebody who has acid reflux, the idea of drinking an entire bottle of whiskey with as much as antacid as this guy consumes, his stomach would just explode. <laughs> I would like to bring up one, what I feel is a problem with the antacids. So they matter in the short story because the short story is all about accidentally summoning a spirit or a demon into an item. Yeah, an extraordinary domino effect of coincidences, yeah. Right, like the virgin blood, the bat. Which is what makes it scary. Right, exactly. And part of that domino of coincidences is the Easy Lax medicine has Belladonna in it, or the Hand of Glory, as they keep referring to, and it gets dropped into the machine, changing the entire dynamic of what they're expecting. That's fine, for a recently accidentally possessed piece of equipment. In this movie, we have an established decades-long possession mm -hmm. handed down throughout all of the old money of town, but it somehow matters that Miss Frawley accidentally dropped her medicine into it? That shouldn't mean shit, because <laughs> it has nothing to do with the original summoning. I don't, I don't know that it mattered so much. Yeah, they it, act like it matters. They make a big deal out of it. It felt like it it woke it up a little bit. Yeah, it's basically like you meant, the, the original story is about this thing that becomes this. This movie, it's a pre-possessed thing that it, with the right ingredients, it just becomes extra ornery. Like, <laughs> it was going to be fed a sacrifice anyway, but it just wakes up earlier. And then when it gets a little bit of Belladonna, it just kind of gets supercharged, apparently, and can break loose. The 16-year-old the sacrifice thing, I have to admit, was one of the things that really threw me for a loop. Because that, that actress did not... She looked like about the same 16 as I look 16 right yeah, 16, now. 16, uh, you know... Going on 38. A la 36 is what I had in my notes. Like, yeah, and, so and I realized we this close. was like 
90210 glory days of, you know, middle-aged people playing teenagers, but holy shit, Mangler. Yeah, the script specifies, so she's obviously supposed to be 16, and it specifies Lin Su is supposed to be 18. Yeah. And they do not look it at all. So it, it is drawing for, now Sherry, I think the actress was, I think she was like 25, 26 when it was filmed. But she, not kidding, yeah, she she looks just the way the makeup's done and whatever, she just looks older than that. So yeah, it's a little, it throws you just a little bit. Yeah, like everybody else has got old person makeup on it, so they got a 16-year-old who didn't need it. So this makes me want to talk about the ending. So the whole point is Gartley is looking to bring Lin Su into the fold and satisfy his obligation. So Lin Su has her offering of her finger, and they're going to be feeding it Sherry on her 16th birthday. That's the plan. It gets ornery beforehand because it gets a taste of blood. Chaos and Belladonna. Fine, fine, fine. So enough. So then Hunton and Jackson show up and they interrupt the sacrifice, right? They're like, nope, you don't get her. We're going to stop this now. And oops, we're in fact, you know what? We'll feed you the two people you were trying to help out. Ha ha. And now we're going to exercise you. And of course, that fails. Because it's souped up on Belladonna. Yeah, that exorcise became exercise pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Halloween Kills gets shit on a lot. Like, like I know there were that was a highly divisive film, just like the new Texas Chainsaw. But there are two moments in that movie I absolutely adore, and this Mangler moment reminded me of one of them, which is the spoilers for Halloween Kills. But the ending after the everyone you know beats up on Michael Myers, you know the whole town's taking turns on him, and then Michael just goes. You done and gets up. <laughs> it's like my turn. <laughs> that was my point of view on the Mangler thing, where they're doing, you know, tossing Bibles in, you know, the amazing Ted Levine line of dialogue. Hey, man, God damn it! And throwing Bibles <laughs> and there's that beat of silence, and the Mangler goes, "Y'all done? Boom!" <laughs> the fuck out. So that was the Halloween kills moment of this movie. I loved it when they threw the Bible in there because it made me think of the time we threw an elder sign at the. <laughs> God Call of Cthulhu. It's like, it's not a baseball, dumbass. <laughs> so they fail to exercise it. And it goes, you know what? Fuck you. I'll get my food myself. And it rips itself out of the ground and starts chasing them through the facility. Which, you know, for stars, which this apparently has a stairwell to yes! the underworld. It's oh, got a goddamn it so like catacomb crypt stairwell, which goes just to the sewer. You know, oh. <laughs> like the really, really fucking deep I, sewer. That's it. Oh, I loved it so much because the movie has all this. Just to touch real quick, like it has Toby Hooper's always had, not necessarily always, but a lot of stuff I rewatched. This garish lighting, you know, this re- I, and that's here. You know, the super bright primary colors. Yep. And in conjunction with that, all the framing of this movie with the noirish lighting in a lot of places and focusing on all these gothic elements, the gothic architecture, a lot of these gothic looking interiors. And then you get the most gothic spiral staircase that ever was. Yes. The script does specify that when they get to the bottom of it, or I think it's actually along the way, they find the leftovers of everyone who was sacrificed to the Mangler previously. See, that would work. So that's why it's kind of this big pit, is they're using it basically as a disposal area. If it was like, you know, if there was like the storage of the bodies or like the altar where the first, you know, ritual is held, you know, if it was like actually the sacred place, that would make sense for the gothic build out of it. But it really is just the access stairwell to the sewer. And it's so fucking over the top. It's ridiculous. Like, I thought we were going into some run to hell shit. And nope. Yeah. (laughs) Nope. 
So they're on the loose. It's chasing. It wants Sherry. It wants a sacrifice. It's hungry. It's been waiting. It's going to take what's owed to it. On the way, Jackson gets, unfortunately, uh, unalived. And that just happens. Yeah, he does. <laughs> Sherry's like, hey, no, I'll save you. I'll sacrifice myself. And the process gets her hand, you know, caught in it and pulls away. And they get down to the bottom. And then it stops. <laughs> it, just, yeah. it just gives up. It's like, okay, you know what? That was too much. I've been way too sedentary for way too long. I just don't have the cardio for this anymore. You know, you guys just go. I'll catch up to you later. Use dragon fire, Adam. And then one gear falls into the water. And then Ted Levine's basically like, well, let's assume that was a critical gear. (laughs) If it doesn't have that one gear, it can't function. Well, we won. I mean, look, I get lightheaded when I stand up too fast sometimes, too, especially after a big meal. So, I mean, I get it. I'm with the mangler on this. I understand. Now, I feel to some degree what you're supposed to take away from this is, so Sherry, of course, loses a finger and quickly becomes very similar to Gartley and just because she's now got a piece of the mangler in her and and she's in it. And that's fine to a degree, but it feels to me, I'm very much used to the demons or sticklers for their fucking contracts. He pulls out a paper for Christ's sake that's signed and has a big old (laughs) bloody handprint on it to show. Yeah. The mangler is also a notary apparently. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and so what did the, the, the demons sign that? And they were like, well, what are you going to do now? I'm like, I'll just hang out in the fucking machine. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> so it is owed Sherry. It is going to take Sherry. There is no reason why it shouldn't just go and eat Sherry. But instead it's like, Hey, you know what? I got your finger. You know, all right, fine. How about you take over? Can I have your kid when you're 16? You know, it's like it's it's the laziest <laughs> fucking demon I've ever Look, seen as far as contracts go. In the mangler's defense. That was a lot of steps. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, yeah, but downstairs, if it was if it was upstairs, maybe it's like yeah. But, but right, as right. much that much fucking junk in its trunk, man, that is steps up down, still a lot of steps. Be mentioned. I think the the plot logic of the, the reason for them thinking okay we're safe is that the mangler was basically leaving bits of itself behind, and that basically it was just falling apart. And, yeah, yeah. But it's hard to track that visually because that was when the Mangler breaks free. That was like I was like, oh, this is really cool conceptually, and the way it's written in the script is kind of similar to the way it's written in the story, where it's this big gout of steam and you have these big red eyes. It's more descriptive in the script where it mentions it's basically it's this mechanical dragon with this canvas tongue that's flailing about, which sounds amazing. I wish I had seen it. <laughs> you did it was fucking dinobots in transformers <laughs> six or whatever yeah age of extinction yeah um but that was obviously beyond so here's where the budget became a problem so yes. that was obviously beyond their means and what we get instead is rough yeah and, and it's 1995 you know cg assisted effects i mean it's not it's just it's very distracting so i, I wish they could have gotten away with just a shitload of steam and like literal smoke and mirrors with it more somehow it's difficult to do with the way the spiral staircase is structured because you have open air. So in the hallway, you could have just done more. It's just a shitload of steam with red eyes in it. And every now and then you see bits of it come out. The staircase thing makes it trickier. Yes. But I wish they could have kept that more vague because instead what you do see of it is, Oh, it's not great. Look, I, I mean, again, we're talking, this is a tilt film. 
for me. <laughs> and I I didn't know. I I read the short story after seeing the film. Same. So in this, when it gets up, I literally stood up and cheered because that was the best possible outcome for this film. Was this monster steamer getting up and chasing him like I can't imagine anything better, and I don't think they're going to do it because this has a budget of $9, and it got up, and I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> I was so excited that this actually happened. So, I mean, that shit could have looked like, you know, and it didn't look great, obviously. But, like, you know, I keep making the Transformers joke, but I couldn't track shit in Transformers 1 anyway, so what's the damn difference to me? As long as robots are doing shit, I'm happy. <laughs> I feel this is a movie that would have done well with a closer depiction to the original short story. Like the way you keep reading the script to me, it sounds like that would have just been better. Uh, so it would have been less Toby Hooper. I'll admit that it would. Yeah. So the thing is, is it reads less over the top and I just don't think there's enough there, even with the way they restructured it. I don't think there's enough there to make it that engaging. Like hmm. like the movie's depiction of Mark Jackson where where he's you know just, just much more of a character than he was in in the like I mean literally a character like you know quirky. Yes. Looks like the dude from uh Revenge of the Nerds too. Oh, I thought he looked like a lot I had him as new Michael Sheen in my notes but yeah. I, I was he... thinking the same thing. I actually had to go check IMDb. I'm like, wait, wait, is this like a really young Michael Sheen and I just don't recognize him? I got to double check. Like Rise of the Lycans era Michael Sheen. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> But I just think a, a lot of it, just reading it was like, I'm I'm not sure it would have been better. Some of it's better. Like one thing in, in particular pertaining to the ending I makes a bit more sense. But the most jarring change from the script to the finished film, aside from just the overall stuff in the short story, was the role Lin Su played. Mm. All the stuff with Lin Su losing the finger and starting to become possessed by the mangler, not in the script. Lynn Sue is there and she's she's always in the background like when when Gartley's in his office doing something Lynn Sue shows up in the doorway and she's in like lingerie or something so the implication is there but she doesn't get attacked by the mango she doesn't lose the finger there is a sequence at the end where she calls Sherry to say hey something's wrong with your uncle I think he's coming after you just stay home and, and stay safe. So she actually gives Sherry a heads up. Gartley comes out and starts to intimidate Lin Su. He gives her a variation on the speech he gives her instead of the like, you're, you're becoming one of us and shows her that he shows her the certificate, but it's all part of this weird exposition dump. And it's more of an intimidation technique. And then the way that sequence ends is so I'll read the tail end of it. So it's, you know, Gartley gives her, you know, the document he's shown her. He says, you know, Gartley, look, this is where it's signed. A beat. Then Gartley turns the page over, revealing a faded, bloody brown handprint. He puts his hand over it, matching the print. Gartley, I signed here. Lin Su studies the document. Lin Su, I don't understand. A beat while Gartley studies the document. Gartley, before you reach the end, you must go back to the beginning. Lin Su, are you trying to frighten me? Gartley, it's good to be afraid of somebody or something. Gartley pockets the documents, then clackety clacks towards her. Every time Gartley moves in the script, it says clackety clack. <laughs> and also the mangler related to that, 
the mangler was originally supposed to have a much more pronounced heartbeat-esque sound effect like it's it's always two booms it's always boom 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 paired and this was counterbalanced in the script i'll just mention this real quick there was much much more of a heavier element of time in the script we get a lot of time stuff in the movie when will sue dies we get gartley saying you know oh punch the clock out of time and one thing i'll mention real quick on the time thing that I missed the first time around, I, I didn't hear it because it's not subtitled. But when we see Gartley the first time after Sherry gets attacked and he's talking to Stanner and he has the, you know, life's a bitch, then you die. And he's you know stalked back into his office and he has the line, you know, I got deadlines, George. Never enough time around here. Never. There's another line which isn't subtitled. But if you listen, you can hear him say, time is money. Money is time. <laughs> One of these days, Belladonna. Boom! <laughs> so it's just this really funny read of, you know, <laughs> time is money, money is time. The midnight mangler, what mangles at midnight? But the, the movie leaned much heavier on clock imagery. Like, there's a clock in Jackson's office. If you look, all the characters have watches. And it was comparing the steady, rhythmic noises and the consistency of a clock versus the mangler, which had this organic, offbeat, you know, paired heartbeat. So it's supposed to be kind of a sonic offset there. So anyway, so Gartley shows her the document. So it says, you know, Gartley clackety clacks towards her. There's menace to his gate. Lin Su backing away. No, I'm frightened. Gartley scared to death. Lin Su, you're crazy. She picks up the phone, dials. Gartley clackety clacks towards her. Gartley put the phone down. Lin Su finished dialing. Gartley grabs the phone and rips it out of the wall. Lin Su, what's cutting into you? He walks up to her. Gartley. More than you can handle. He strikes her with his metal cane. Lin Su screams, reels back, staggers to the door. Gartley follows her out. The catwalk outside Gartley's office. Gartley strikes her again. She screams, holds up her arms in futile defense against the blow. Gartley. I need you, Lin Su. He raises his cane and swipes at her leg, tripping her with the handle. Lin Su tumbles down the stairs. Gartley follows. Gartley. You can give me the power to do what I... And there's word out here but there's obviously reference to times a wasting sorry there's a smudge on the script <laughs> lin su hits the floor snap her leg breaks lin su ah oh, my leg he clackety clacks down the stairs with both canes gartley all you have to do is die for me we all have to make sacrifices boom 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 the mangler starts up he feebly drags her towards the machine hooking her with his walking sticks she kicks and screams gartley Time to pay up. Taxes are long overdue. Gartley pulls Lin Su's good leg up under the safety bar. She kicks and struggles and screams. Gartley. I beg of you, O Lord, God of all beasts, accept this small offering as a token to grant me the power to fulfill my promise to you. The mangler speeds up. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. And she's sucked in and gone in an instant. The rollers turn red. A blinding flash of light silhouettes Gartley. A wind whips his strands of hair and clothes. In this energy, we see Gartley's twisted body straighten up. He drops his canes. Gartley. A promise is a promise. I am an honorable man. Thy will be done. The energy burst subsides. Gartley stands there, smoldering. His skin is taut, right down to the skull giving him a sardonic smile. He checks his golden pocket watch. The watch. 
Antique inlaid hands tell us it's eleven o'clock. He snaps the watch closed. Gartley. And now for the main course. And then he goes and gets Linsu at the mansion. So wow. I know that was kind of a lengthy segment, but nice. I was fucking riveted. So, but so the different purpose that Lin Su serves. So it, he sacrifices Lin Su, and then he becomes like we mentioned, kind of how in the finale, the Mangler gets basically it's already possessed. It just gets supercharged by all this shit. It gets fed over the course. The same thing happens to Gartley. He gives Lin Su as a sacrifice, and it gives him a bit of juice. And all of a sudden, he doesn't need the canes anymore, and he's just mobile. So it would have been an excuse for Robert Englund to, you know, not be in those appliances a bit. And then he just goes off, and, and he captures Sherry all by himself. Hmm. And so, yeah, so a little bit of a different course for the finale there. The rest of it kind of plays out the same. But That would make more sense for why they chose a younger actor and aged him up uh, for the role, so that he could do that young, energized moment later on. But then, of course, they changed it and moved on. And they kept him anyway. I did see the change there. So here he's referring to the uh, the god of beasts. And in the actual finished product, it's the god of machines. And I really kind of like that. I, I like that. To me, it gave me the impression of multiple demonic gods or entities that could be tapped. You know, it's he's not referencing, per se, like Satan. It's not just like a satanic demon. Um, it's its own demon of the machine the ghost of the machine if you will mm -hmm. and i thought that was a very nice touch especially with gartley becoming more machine-like with his legs and, and his throat and everything like that like he's becoming the, the longer he works for and as a part of this machine demon the more machine he becomes I, that i really liked with this movie yeah that that's interesting it's i i mean it's probably better I don't know, but I don't, I just don't think this movie is served by making it more serious in any fashion. Yeah, no, less so, over so the top. It makes more plot logic for, like, for you to see a reciprocal effect demonstrated in the movie for feeding the mangler. Yeah. Like it makes sense to when he feeds Lin Su and you actually see him get something out of it. Instead, it's, it's the mangler eats a bunch of shit, but no one like gets a direct benefit from it until kind of the finale with Sherry. But we're, we're, we're so far past plot logic at this point that it's like, right whatever but the flip side of that is i actually really enjoy lin su's performance in this yes. particularly at the end when she's getting just her hair gets higher and higher and she gets a leather jacket and in the finale she goes cat people by literally holding <laughs> up her hands and like claws and going hey, and running after mark and then mark just kind of like hip tosses her into the machine oh see i would have actually appreciated this movie being a bit more serious personally but You'd have to redo it from almost the, the word go. You'd have to like rein in Ted Levine and and uh, oh. <laughs> you'd have to rein in Robert England. I and can't Ted help Levine. it. I love I love Ted <laughs> Levine so much. But, oh. He's so good at this. This is his second best performance on this podcast. But it's it's, it's no Banshee chapter. Yeah. It's no Banshee chapter. No Banshee but. chapter. But, and you'd have to, like, get rid of the crazy gothic stairwell. And you'd, you'd have to change so much it would be a different film. Right. So I will say this. While I would have personally enjoyed a more serious version of this movie, it would be a completely different movie. So for the movie it was, I like it. I, yeah. I liked it, too. Because, again, tilt, you know, over the top. We don't have to worry about plot logic. We can just let it wash over and just be whatever goofy ass glory it wants to be. I need, I need more plot logic. I just always need more plot logic. 
I did not at all. Like I said, once that brother was introduced and Ted Levine was like, cool, let's eat a steak with the hippie, whatever. (laughs) One quick note on Ted Levine noise. I assume everyone has seen interviews with Toby Hooper at some point in research this, but if you ever see Toby Hooper talk, he has this kind of deep voice and he kind of talks like this. So Toby Hooper's voice is very... So I don't wish for drama on set, but I really wish at some point Ted Levine and Toby Hooper got in a big argument. So all you would have heard was... <laughs> just alternating <laughs> pitches. That would have been magical. <laughs> but yeah, for... I'll say this too. We, we t- like Stephen King has mentioned, I think he, he touched on the Mangler. I forget which book it was in or which interview it was in. But he basically said, you know, sometimes geniuses strike out. Toby Hooper did a great job with Salem's Lot. Not so much the Manglers is the gist of what he said. And I'll say that I, I, I don't know if one of the things King took umbrage with was kind of that jarring tonal difference. But I'll say that while the movie is campier, I don't think it's entirely not in keeping with the original short because the whole, the reveal of the Belladonna in the original short story is like, well, thank God there's no Belladonna. And then meanwhile, and there's just this really cheeky cutaway, (laughs) the third person omniscient to, by the way, Belladonna. So the humor didn't feel that incongruous with the original material. And I thought the extrapolation of, you know, because Gartley doesn't appear at all in in the original story. He's referenced, but he doesn't appear at all. So I, I thought the way they spun that, I th- that's a, an interesting way to graft onto that story. And, and I, I think that basic approach was interesting. Them turning it into this big, you know, commentary on, you know, corporate American commerce and whatnot. I, I definitely like the movie more than I like the short story. And I feel weird saying that because I'm a big Stephen King fan, but I, I definitely did. Like, I enjoyed it more. I, I thought the short story is fun. I, you know, it's enjoyable. Like I said, it, the, the cheeky bits. And the asides are fun. It, and, you know, the, the ending's a lot of fun. The ending of this movie was one of the things that was a little odd to me, which is the whole finale of this where we get Picture Man saying, you know, so he gets the, the thing from Picture Man and basically says, you know, they got a saying in here, beware people with missing parts. There's a piece of each of them in the demon, blah, blah, blah. And it's just kind of, and then it just fades directly into hunting, going to see Sherry. And all of a sudden, he's got this bouquet of flowers. Like, it's a whole-ass bouquet. And it's like, uh... For a 16-year-old. Yeah, it's like, uh, is this... Now, logically, it's it's probably not supposed to be a romantic thing. Like, he, he just met her, you know, whatever. But it's... And also, like I said, she's 16! But when he shows up, and he's smiling for the first time, and he's got this bouquet of flowers, it's like, what are you doing, movie? And, like that took me out of it and then there's the bit where, where sherry holds up and you see your fingers missing and side note it wasn't the ring finger in the script it was the pinky finger mm, which makes sense. thinking of it that's kind of a microcosm for the differences between the story and, and the movie and, and kind of the script because pinky finger makes a lot more sense logic wise like if you put your hand in something it's an outer extremity it's it's you're probably going to lose your thumb or your pinky you know, you're not probably going to lose your ring finger. That's not going to be the first thing that gets grabbed. But in the movie's logic, it's the ring finger for all the imagery of, you know, the lost ring finger and what that symbolizes. It's also easier to see. And yeah, clearly. Like if somebody's yeah. pinky finger is going, you got to count fingers and ring fingers going. You just got to wonder where Gollum is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and but in the one thing I did like in the original script was a the package he gets from picture, the posthumous package he gets from picture man. Wow, that's a lot of alliteration. Is the posthumous picture from picture? Nope, picture man's posthumous package. <laughs> Hold on, the posthumous picture from picture man. 
Nope. Nope. I didn't even <laughs> think I said it. a word the second. Yep. The potch of it. Just stop. Just stop. <laughs> <laughs> you failed horribly. <laughs> Game over. <laughs> so originally in conjunction with that, he gets the letter that's like the where people were missing parts. But there's also a series of photos and there's Gartley, Judge Bishop. It's all the people who are missing fingers. And one of them is Picture Man. So Picture Man sent him a picture of himself to show I was one of them. So then after this happens, Hunton goes to his wife's grave and he puts flowers on his on her grave. I'll mention we do see the car accident at one point in the original script. There's a flashback. Hunton has more visions of the mangler in the script, not a bunch, but more things like there's the bit in the finished film where he's talking to Mark and he looks at the water wheel and he kind of has this flash of the mangler and it goes, Oh God damn it. Which again, in a regular movie would probably be somebody going like, Oh, and like having a chill or like, I, I, I just can't. Instead, this is a movie directed by Toby Hooper with Ted Levine in it. So it's, Oh God damn it. And just <laughs> like, I, I fucking can't. I fucking can't. And so, but also, instead of a water wheel in the script, it was a clock. So I mentioned mm. clock imagery. And I liked it actually it being a water wheel because I thought that was this sort of primal implement, you know, for crafting. So it's sort of an analog to the mangler. Also, it's weirder. Also, it's a lot quirkier. It's like, okay, he has that. Sure. But so in a flashback, you do see the car accident with Hunt and driving. It's just basically he and his wife are in an argument. There's like two lines of dialogue and then they crash. So in the original script, Hunton goes to his wife's grave. And so it's a little bit. I'll read it just quick. It says Hunton kneels at Sandra's grave. He places a bouquet of flowers next to the tombstone. Hunton. Goodbye, Sandra. Sorry, I can't. I got to read it. Like Ted. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to articulate it as best I can to make it audible, but still kind of Ted Levine. <laughs> Goodbye, Sandra. I'm leaving Rikers Valley to start over again. I'm going to miss you. Rest in peace, my beloved. He stands and turns away, then kneels back down, takes a flower, and heads for his car. And then he goes to the place. So it's not this fucking bouquet. He shows up with a single flower, which seems like a little thing, but it's... That'd be fine. It would have been a lot less jarring if he just shows up. And if you see him, take it off his wife's grave, and it's like, and he says specifically, I'm leaving, yep. but I'm going to make a stop. And that kind of takes it. So I, I really wish, I don't know if they filmed it. I don't it. know. Single flower, deflowering. It feels like there's some weird connection there. Oh. <laughs> I don't know. Well, here's the problem. Like, it sets up him, you know, you, the way you read it, it sets up him leaving town and then getting, like, brokenhearted when he realizes that, you know, Sherry's gone to the dark side. But to me, it really felt like they were setting up a sequel. Because the majority of the film is him realizing oh, the evil you mean like the mangler too i slept through these these are movies turn me into ted levine oh, god damn it i feel they were setting up a more legit sequel in that, you know, so the majority of the film is him going, oh, shit, this machine is possessed. Oh, crap. It's kind of like fed by and maintained by Gartley. Oh, it's going for Sherry. And then by the end of the film, just before he realizes everything was for naught, he's kind of led to believe, all right, now it's not just the machine. It's the whole fucking town of like people. You know, you got the doctors in on it. Now Sherry's in on it. And there's So there's this whole 
ring of a... The whole damn system's out of order. Exactly. (laughs) It's like Twin Peaks. It's a whole damn town. You could almost see, like, the Mangler 2 being about hunting, going out of his way to, like, try and deal with the remainder. You know, like, going after, like, the eight or 12 people who are, like, running this thing. And it just felt, like, set up with no payoff. That touches on something I I liked, too, which is when when Gartley has a line to Lin Su where he's talking about the towns, their dynamic that they have with the Mangler, the sort of weird reciprocal relationship sort of that they have with it. And he said, you know, well, obviously you can see how great things are around here. And you know, obviously that comes at a cost. It's like, this is, everything is shitty. Everyone works his <laughs> fucking mission. So it's it's very clear. Like, it's like he thinks everything is great, but it's not even like it is great for a select few. He paints it as this, you know, utopian. Well, we have to make sacrifice for the greater good. But it's no, it's the greater good of five old white dudes. Yep, that's it. That's a little on the nose. Yeah, <laughs> but. I, I will read one other script note, if you'll indulge me in this. So there, there's one other bit that wasn't in the film, at least not. It's kind of repurposed. So there's, after Lin Su is sacrificed, it cuts to Hunton and Jackson in a diner, and they're going through Frazier's Golden Bough. But there's payoff to this that isn't in the finished film. So it reads, Hunton and Jackson nurse cups of coffee. Again, they're in a diner. Frazier's Golden Bough is open on the table next to a holy Bible. Jackson. I'm going to read from the Bible. When I point to you, sprinkle holy water on the machine with your fingers. You say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, get thee from this place, thou unclean. Got it? Hunting. Yeah. Jackson. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Jackson. The second time I point, break the wafer and repeat the incantation again. Hunting. Or if it doesn't work, Jackson stops reading. In the background, we see a waitress with two coffee pots filling cups for the late night crowd. Jackson. Then we repeat the process. It'll fight like hell, but it'll lose. Want to try it? Hunting. Sure. A beat. Jackson. Turnest not thou aside to idols, nor make molten gods of yourself. I am thy lord, thy god. Hunting looks up, sees the waitress behind Jackson. She gives him a strange look. Jackson is oblivious to her presence. Jackson. And the land will vomit you out for having defiled it, as it vomited out nations before you. This is where you sprinkle the holy water and sees Hunton stare. What? Jackson follows Hunton's eyes and turns to see the waitress. Waitress. Regular or decaf? Jackson. <laughs> decaf. Hunton. Hard stuff for me. And then see. So... <laughs> It's not even that bit I, I wanted to read. A little bit of an idea of something that was different. I left out a crucial bit, which is the very first line of that setting. Because I mentioned it's in a diner. But here's how it reads in the script. Interior, Denny's, night. Ah! The second time on this podcast, we were deprived of a potential <laughs> Denny's tie-in menu for a movie. This movie could have had a Denny's tie-in menu. You know, it'd be a meal called like the Mangler. It'd just be like a the Mangler ton slam. of bacon all in a ritter <laughs> You think I'm not tearing up the Mangler right now? Come on, man. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got to be. I thought about this. And it was like, there's a lot of things to be. It's got to be silver dollar pancakes. It's got to be. <laughs> Nothing says Mangler aside from like smush flat pancakes, but specifically the pancakes that are named after currency. There's nothing more Mangler than silver dollar pancakes. So the Mangler Slam would be a regular Grand Slam, except silver dollar pancakes. You get the old money special, 
which is supposed to come with 10 sausage links, but it only comes with nine. (laughs) (laughs) Denny's. Every time you dine at Denny's, there's a little piece of you left behind and a little piece of Denny's in you. (laughs) Welcome to the Clean Plate Club. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. The only downside is that you'd have to have the the Tums right on the table. The Belladonna variety. <laughs> See, now we just need to sell a shirt that actually has the Denny's menu on it. But like with the, with the specials in place. <laughs> no manglers. Silver dollars. <laughs> well, we're not topping that, so. <laughs> the, the only other thing I wanted to toss out was if this movie was made now, it would probably be darker, more serious. Yes. Do you think it could work? Like a modern adaption to this? I do think it could work. I think it would be a very different beast. I think you have to have had a budget to support the actual beastie when it comes out of the ground and chases them. If you couldn't pull that off, it's just shit. <laughs> it's, it's, you would have to have the budget to get the special effects in because it would be riding strongly on that. I, I think you could do it. So you're saying James Wan would have to make it. We were so close. We were so close. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't letting you get through one. Come on, man. I think they could pull it off. But no, it, it, it would it would cease to be any sort of semblance to a Toby Hooper movie. But you could do it. I think this is one of those short stories and one of those things that it benefits from the over-the-topness of the adaption. I think if you tried to make it you know, more dark, grim, gritty, serious horror film it wouldn't be fun because the the premise is so inherently ridiculous man it's killing fucking you know laundry machine like you can grim and gritty all you want on top of that it's still a killer fucking laundry machine so look i think that works though because even before it hurt anyone even before it ripped out of the ground even before the first drop of blood was shed i'm just watching those damn gears turn and like remembering as a small child that that inherent terror you had of someday my damn legs will get caught in my bike chain and it's going to just like tear into me and be awful and like this is just took that to like the 10th level well sure but what you know how do you make a horror movie about you know a terrifying bike chain like i look i get it i understand that it's scary and that this machine is creepy and all that i'm just saying it's hard to build a movie around that where you basically have have to have some way for people to get tossed into this laundry machine. Yeah, it's so fascinating because the the monster is stationary. Yes. Like yeah. in other stuff, like in there would have to be like it can control something in order to lure you in or there would be sick. And the mango has a bit of that where it can control like the steam hoses and stuff like that. But functionally speaking, using the dragon imagery, the movie is about a dragon that can't move can't fly and has to invent reasons for people to reach into its mouth constantly <laughs> is what this is. Like it just has to keep putting because you, it can't come to you or at least it chooses not to until the end, you have to come to it. So there, there's an inherent farce to it because of that. Right. That's what you would lose in the serious version is that it would actually be two films almost because the first half of the movie, maybe well, three fourths would be more of a, Gartley is this psychopath who is killing people and using the machine. Like the less the machine comes off as alive initially, the more it'll pay off because you just have this psychopath doing his thing. And then the punch comes when it rips itself out of the fucking ground. Like it would at that point become a completely different film. You go from body horror slasher to possessed beastie. 
and much like martyrs took a, a 180 degree turn whoa <laughs> <laughs> it would be a very would be two very different films but with that that juncture point and when it ripped itself out of the ground it was a whole new serious film <laughs> I broke Eric. <laughs> oh my, I just, that was not the reference point I was expecting. Whoa. Once it's not the machine, I think you lose both the inherent point of the story and that that's a problem. Because, you know, the, the whole, I mean, this isn't a difficult allegory. Hey, the machine is a terrible, awful thing, you know? All right, we get it. It's not subtle. It's not Stephen King. It is most subtle here. But um, I don't know. I, I would certainly be curious to see how you would do it now. But I also don't think I think somehow you would have a real hard time making something as entertaining as this incredibly maligned film. So it's a catch twenty two. See, I, I still disagree with you because you disagree with me. What a shock! Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Let's take a look at Christine. Christine, for a good portion of it, you know, the big turn was when he goes, "Show me," and it fixes itself. Like that was the the turning point. Where you're like, "Oh shit." This thing is so not just him going crazy with a car. You know, this thing is like legitimately a problem. And that was a great turning point for a serious take on a Stephen King story. Sure, but cars got wheels. That is ridiculous because it's, you know, a car that wants to like, you know, kill people. You, know, you don't got to throw invent reasons to throw people into the engine. You know, cars move. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I think it could, it could have been done with a bit of proper writing and tone approach i i think it's too thin on the ground to do a real serious like full length picture adaption that really still keeps the core of the you know the fundamental allegory in there i mean i'm not saying it can't be done at all because you know i'm not a filmmaker shit i don't know what you know you listen to this podcast long enough you wouldn't trust me with a camera but it <laughs> I, I think it's the inherent ridiculousness of the basic premise means that you have to have some level of tongue-in-cheekness to what you do with it. Otherwise, you end up with something that just doesn't work. And I think this works, somehow. Yeah, it, it's it's such a peculiar question to answer, just because again, it's... Because we've been so much th more thoroughly positive about the movie than, than <laughs> a, a lot of other people. Hey, I was expecting. Holy shit, I was expecting this to be... You know, I was like, I, I really thought, I was like, oh man, I'm going to be the only person who had fun with this. And it's only because I like ridiculous over the top shit. So, so I'm glad everyone liked it. But boy, holy shit, three outliers on one fucking podcast. <laughs> three people who like the Mangler on one podcast? <laughs> Fuck me. Statistically improbable. But yeah, it's so weird because the, the movie, I, I love the, the conceptual approach so much. And, and I love what it's going for. It is such a goddamn mess. And it is, oh, like, yeah. like I said, even yes. within its own internal logic, as bizarre as it is, there's stuff that feels so out of place. The casting is a mixed bag, and, like, some people are great, but it's, and structurally, it's weird, and some of the, it's just the way it cuts between stuff. Like, it's, it's, it's very messy. Within its own inherent peculiarity, it's a thoroughly peculiar film, and enough that it's jarring and it takes you out of it. But, like I said, the crux of the message that they tried to take it in it absolutely resonates. So, yeah, I, I think you probably could. I'd be curious to see how you make the decision to rework it if you're not going to route this movie did exactly what you would land on to recontextualize the story. And like I said, put you know more meat on that skeleton 
I'd be fascinated to see you know what the approach would be. You know, hell, let's get Mike Flanagan. He's doing all the really great Stephen King. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Mike. Oh, take I'd crack love the love to see what Flanagan would do with this. He he would be one of the few people I would actually trust with this because again, the miracle that is Ouija too. I'd be willing to bet we'd probably get this you know thoroughly wrought character piece probably with Gartley because we know Gartley sacrificed his daughter to this thing you know years ago so it would probably be all about gartley's inner turmoil instead of this movie's you know with gartley's inner turmoil is basically <laughs> <laughs> and and we know mike flanagan can make inanimate an object scary so oh man if we go with an ending closer to the short stories that i i was thinking the other day is like man i kind of i kind of want that to see that old mike flanagan again the old, like the, the nihilistic Mike Flanagan of Absentia and Oculus. Like I'm loving like all the stuff we've gotten. I was like, but I wonder if, if Mike will get to a point where he makes something just really has a fucking mean spirited ending. <laughs> and this would be a good opportunity. This would for be that. a good movie to make a mean spirited Mike Flanagan picture. Absolutely. Well, there we go. Let's put that out into the universe. Mike Flanagan's got to make, remake the mangler. If he does it, he's got, he just has to say thanks to us for the idea. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> And we're back to sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, and I tell you, and obviously I have to do this because I'm a fanboy, but you know, the other people I wouldn't mind seeing take a crack at it would be Benson and Moorhead. Yay. Because who wouldn't want to see Benson and Moorhead in the cop and brother roles? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. And look what they did with an ashtray. Yeah. We get Benson is hunting. He's played a cop before. How you doing, <laughs> Hank? How are we doing, Mark? <laughs> Let's call it something in the wash. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. Touchdown. (laughs) Yeah, man, I'm just, I I knew this would, this movie is bound to be a fun discussion no matter what. I've been looking forward to this because love it or hate it, it's hard not to talk about this movie and have a good time. Um, I don't know if the same applies to The Mangler 2 and The Mangler Reborn. Make me go Ted Levine. But so I knew this was going to be fun no matter what, but I I'm, I'm certainly glad we all got something out of it. So yeah. Wow. Holy shit. Thanks everyone for voting the mangler. This would not have happened with night terrors. I guarantee it. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Challenge accepted. I would be having this good of a time with night terrors. And I'd also be looking for two new co-hosts. <laughs> now, let's not go too far. I like some awful shit. You do. I'm not copping to that, but you do. But holy shit, I'm, I'm, I'm glad we all had a good time with this. Like I said, I'm actually, like I said, in terms of where the movie falls on my scale, I'm, I like it. I don't, I don't think it is a lost masterpiece. Nope. No. But I, I do think if there are folks who haven't seen it, who have been dismissive of it based on its reputation which again because this movie's the reputation of it is is very thoroughly attached this is one of the default movies to you know oh awful you know he's hard but i'm saying if you haven't seen it and you like camp kitsch over the top especially the kitsch elements of other toby hooper stuff because this movie is full of its own as i put it in my notes it's self-aware buffoonery <laughs> but yeah i i would say give it a shot because i i do think Especially, like I said, looking at it in Hooper's filmography, I think it is it is more interesting and there is more effort and intent and thought on display than the movie often gets credit for. So I don't I don't think it's a home run, but I, I do think it when it takes its swing, it connects with the ball. Yeah, I would not I would agree with you. It's not a hidden masterpiece. It's not something that everybody must see. 
I would say it is a, I would give it a high recommendation for anyone who is a fan of an aspect of it. If you are a Toby Hooper fan, you will enjoy this because it's very much, uh, I think, his style there. If you are a Stephen King fan, I think you will enjoy this because of how close to the adaption it is. If you're a big fan, well, it's pretty damn, it hits all the points. <laughs> it adds extra shit, but it hits all the points. For an adaption, it's not bad. For an adaption, it hits all the points in the story. That's my point. I, I have a hard time believing that that huge Stephen King fans are big into the Mangler. Well, it's a short story. Stephen King is not into the Manglers. <laughs> like, if you were a diehard fan of the Manglers short story, fuck yeah, roll right in. Exactly, like, exactly. If you're a big fan of Robert England or Ted Levine, I think they are very much themselves in this. <laughs> <laughs> so if you hit those aspects, if those really like just do it for you, go see the film. You know, if if you get hard on every time you pass a, a laundry folding machine, this is the movie for you. But I, but don't I, tell us that because I don't want to know that shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you're not specifically looking for one of those aspects, you know, enter at your own peril. Uh, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. Yeah, like this definitely crossed my wackadoodle event horizon for me to be able to enjoy it. I wouldn't really recommend it to, I mean, anybody, I, you know, I don't know. <laughs> <But it's... laughs> well, like, I, all right, you know, fans of Toby Hooper, maybe fans of Stephen King. I, I, I'm still saying probably not on that one. But it, if you liked, like, well, if you liked our, our previous film, Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, I think you probably have a good mindset to go in this with. They're not similar films, but they both have that kind of, they're not giving you what you expect based on reputation. It's funny. I have Malignant on the brain because one of my notes here is the fact that Gartley treats his daughter's death certificate about as well as the mother Malignant treated the birth certificate. So I've got Malignant on the brain where you're talking about comparison. Folks. Uh, look, I thought about Malignant a lot watching this because they're both over the top but malignant didn't quite get over my event horizon and this did and that makes me wonder about myself more than anything else so yeah i wouldn't <laughs> recommend this to, to people but i i certainly had a good time i'm glad it won the poll and i'm glad we did it it was really enjoyable they do have i, I will say on the malignant note they do have moments that i, I, I wouldn't recommend to anyone else but moments i appreciated of both comically absurd moments of people getting hit with wooden objects because malignant <laughs> has the scene of the year which is where the chair gets chucked across yeah. the police station yes. in shot put style. And this movie, like I mentioned, in the original script, Gartley takes care of kidnapping Sherry on his own. He just comes in, puts the ether on her. In this movie, Gartley runs interference and Lin Su runs in wrestling style with a fucking two by four <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and breaks it over Sherry's back. It is fucking hilarious. So if you like people getting hit with wooden objects and laughing your ass off, check it out. <laughs> the, the difference between the two for me is like, all right, so with Malignant, there's way too much of the, of the slow part of Bohemian Rhapsody. Like ha mo way too much <laughs> of that movie is, mama, I just killed a man. You know, where you only, you get the fast part at the end. This fucking movie, you know, credits roll and somebody screaming Scaramouche at you. Like, right, bah, right bah, away. Bah, 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 bah. You know, and, and just it carries through. So <laughs> Someone overdub <laughs> Bohemian Rhapsody on the end credits as Ted Levine's pulling away. Bah, 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 bah. <laughs> so, yeah. Ted Levine. Or is she a little silhouette of a man? Scaramouche, Thunderbolt, lightning, very frightening. <laughs> Oh. 
Maybe our first actor spotlight will have to be Ted Levine. I don't know. I, we, <laughs> what, what other horror movies has Ted Levine done? They're actually going to do a whole episode with just that voice. <laughs> We're going to do Silence of the Lambs, and Eric's going to do the entire thing in that voice. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because like, you know, most reviews are talking about how england is the big takeaway like oh england's so over the top and he's yeah <laughs> I, I didn't realize this until i saw on on robert england's website that his inspiration for the part was everett sloan in orson welles the lady from shanghai and i was like i'd seen lady from shanghai i don't remember it and i went back and rewatched it for this and whenever and sloan shows up he's sitting there and he's got he's walking on two canes i was like oh yeah, clearly shot one but his performance does have a lot of, of that in it. England is such a old Hollywood nut. But so all these other Mangler reviews tend to dwell on Robert England. Our podcast, fucking Ted Levine. <laughs> <laughs> this is just 90 minutes of Ted Levine yelling at people. <laughs> God damn it. God damn it. Which as a genre, I'm in for, man. <laughs> yeah, this has been fun. And so, yeah. Thank you to everyone who voted in our poll, no matter which movie you voted for. Hopefully, like I said, hopefully we'll do the other two. Definitely stuff to talk about there. And yeah, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Next up for us, with plan is we'll be going back to Elm Street. So we're going to be doing Dream Child, Freddy's Dead, Wes Craven's New Nightmare, and then the remake. We've already recorded the Dream Child audio, like we mentioned on Twitter. It's fabulous. Erica Henderson comes on as our guest for that one. And it was such a delight to have her on this podcast, so I can't wait for people to hear that audio. Absolutely. And in the meantime, if you want to be alerted when that episode comes out, obviously you can subscribe. If you want to leave us a review, that'd be great. You can follow us on Twitter at Scary Stuff Pod. Follow us on Instagram at Scary Stuff Podcast. And we're also on Letterboxd now, so you can go to at Scary Stuff Pod on Letterboxd. And we've got a complete listing there of every movie we've done and where we've done it. Yeah, and if you leave us a review on iTunes or somewhere, let us know, and we'll, uh, I don't know, we'll send you a fucking signed bottle of antacid for this episode <laughs> <laughs> yeah thank you so much for listening uh, this is eric signing off and saying Wah! this is nick saying you have to exercise your demon don't let it possess your soul this is jake saying posthumous package from picture man <laughs> <laughs> good night everybody picture man peddling picture butter This makes no sense. That makes no sense. That, 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 that. Oh, this is good. I love this movie.